Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Welcome back, everyone. For this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast, I am joined by Matt Carpenter to discuss a variety of topics around the ketogenic low-carb diet when it comes to performance. Matt is a sports science PhD researcher studying the impact of ketogenic diets and exogenous ketones on exercise performance. Matt enrolled at Kingston University in 2014 to complete a bachelor's in sports science, achieving first-class honors. Following this, he completed his master's in sports and exercise performance, also at Kingston University. During his master's degree, he completed a research project entitled Acute Carbohydrate Supplementation Improves Ultra-Endurance Performance in a Keto-Adapted Individual. Matt began his PhD at Kingston University in 2018 in order to further investigate the role of ketogenic and low-carbohydrate dietary interventions on health and exercise performance, in addition to addressing the role of acute supplementation in ketogenic athletes and the impact this has on substrate metabolism and exercise performance. Let's all welcome Matt onto the show and dive right in. If you enjoy this podcast and wish to support either monetarily or by sharing, liking, and subscribing, please head over to zackbetter.com forward slash HPO for options, which include joining my Patreon page, making a quick one-time donation, which includes options to avoid the need of joining a third-party platform, or subscribing to HPO on your favorite podcast listening or viewing platforms. You can also support HPO through the show sponsors. Details on all discounts and promotions from HPO show sponsors can be found at zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. That link is in the show notes. Speaking of show sponsors, for this episode, my friends at Element are sharing some of their goodness to HPO listeners with some of their free products for the cost of shipping. Element makes an electrolyte supplement with no sugar. Each packet is loaded with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. They come in convenient single-serve packets that make them great for bringing along for a run, hike, to the gym, or while traveling. Personally, I love using these in a variety of different ways. I'll use some of their chocolate flavor in my coffee in the morning. I'll use their fruit flavors throughout the day as I'm rehydrating after big workouts. And sometimes I'll even throw their plain and more spicy flavors into a travel bag to add to food dishes and things while I'm traveling on the road. So head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO to take advantage of your free sample pack, which includes eight unique flavor samples for the cost of shipping. Link can also be found in the show notes or by heading over to the show sponsor page, which is zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Also sponsoring this episode is my friends at Bioptimizers and their product Breakthrough Magnesium. It is the only organic full spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium and you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming sleep enhancing effects. I take two of the capsules before bed at night. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. As always, Bioptimizers offers their 360-day money back guarantee, so you can try them at try them out risk-free and see for yourself if they work for you. You can head over to bioptimizers.com forward slash human and enter promo code HUMAN10, that's H-U-M-A-N-1-0, to get 10% off your next order. 
The link and promo is in the show notes and also at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Matt, you uh, are somebody that that I have followed and have been interested in uh, your interest in the ketogenic diet, low carbohydrate diet, and specifically kind of geared towards performance, uh, endurance sport and things like that. So thank you so much for taking some time to come on HPO. Yeah, no problem. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Yeah. And maybe, maybe for our listeners too, if you could share, cause I think we all probably have a semi unique story. Those of us who follow a low carbohydrate diet anyway, or for those who are researching it, um, there's probably a point in which you decided, Hey, this is something I want to learn more about. Can you give us a little bit of background on kind of what first got you originally interested in, in low carbohydrate, uh, performance and using that as kind of a focus point of your research? Yeah, absolutely. So my interest, my background is in sports science. And so I was studying for my sports science, originally undergraduate degree. And um, actually, I've always been interested in nutrition, but hadn't really come across anything specific to, to keto. And then interestingly, we came back one summer. So I think it was my second year of my undergraduate degree. And, um, and the sort of head of our course, so one of the lecturers came back and looked completely different. He'd shed, I don't know how much, but he'd shed a considerable amount of weight. And he wasn't overweight at the start but he'd come back and suddenly he sort of walked in and we had to sort of double take to see like is that him because suddenly he was as, like completely lean like ripped and he's sort of yeah he's in his in his 40s and we're like oh wow like he looks amazing and so sort of, no one said anything <laughs> and then by the end of the year we were looking into projects to do for our uh, our dissertation and he put up on his list of things of his interests low carb high fat diets and I'd always been interested in diet. So I thought, yeah, this, this looks interesting. I didn't think too much of it. And then, so I met with him and sort of sat down and just listened to him talk for, you know, hours about, about his own experience. And what had happened is, you know, over the summer, he'd, he had been reading into low carbohydrate ketogenic diets and, and lost an absolute ton of weight and suddenly wanted to look into it and research it. So it was really inspired by him. And um, so then discussing that with him, we set up a project, which was actually a, a case study on ultra endurance or ultra marathon running um originally looking at 60 kilometer ultra marathon running and looking at the influence of a ketogenic diet just on that and so that's kind of where it began um just doing that i was kind of it was a big learning curve because there's it, it's almost a completely different world especially in sports science we're a very carbohydrate dominated field historically and so suddenly there's this sort of whole wealth of literature that that i was consuming for for a couple of years and so it kind of went from my undergraduate dissertation that we did so then we carried on through masters and I stayed with my same supervisor and we wanted to sort of build on the work we had done and it progressed through that and we did we ran another case study looking at sort of nuances in fueling low carbohydrate ketogenic diets and so I mean with that as well and you know the more you read into it I became curious and I was like okay I'm gonna gonna try this myself and so I did it myself and still do it on and off and I've been doing that for maybe six or seven years so I think it was Mm, six years ago I think I started with my research into it and um and that's taken me to where I am where after my uh master's degree in sports science in which I did some more case study based research in ketogenic diets we then thought okay how can we turn this into a PhD what what how can we expand on the work we've done and, and make it something that's going to really make a difference in terms of learning more about optimizing fueling particularly in ketogenic athletes but also just sort of think what we found is the more we got into it, the muddier we realized the literature was. And the sort of the more you know, the more you know you don't know, I guess. And so so we, you have things like keto adaptation. We looked into it and realized that 
you hear this sort of word keto adaptation bandied around all the time but actually there's there's so much confusion as to what what it means or actually what it is or you know, how long it takes a sort of age-old question of how long keto adaptation takes which is um which takes up a lot of space i think in research and, and lots of these questions and we realize that actually for firstly twofold really firstly you can learn a lot about metabolism and physiology from a sports science perspective from people on ketogenic diets because we're so unique in terms of our metabolism compared to standard individuals um, and also people on low carbohydrate or ketogenic diets have a real hard time knowing what to do around exercise whether they should eat carbohydrate whether they should stay low carbon things like this when it can be quite simple for someone on a standard diet someone on a keto diet you have these kind of questions and so that's kind of what we set out to answer when i started my phd um and yeah i guess that's that's kind of the background that covers everything. Yeah, that's great. And I think it kind of highlights some of the topics we'll probably chat about here today. And one of them that you mentioned with your own like exploration that sticks out to me, because it's just kind of one thing that I'm always thinking about, because I get asked a lot about my diet and kind of how I structure it. And mm -hmm. just like my training, I mean, it's kind of the same question as when someone will ask me, I don't get this one as much anymore, but I used to always get this question, well, how many miles do you run per day? And I'm always racking my brain. It's like, well, which day are you referring to? Because <laughs> this, this Friday I might run 30, but then, you know, on Saturday I may run zero because of that. <laughs> and, and then it becomes like this like idea of, do I tell them like, do I give them a snapshot of what like peak training looks like? Do I tell them like my average over the course of the year, which may kind of be more indicative of what my workload is on average, but not necessarily pinpoint the nuances involved. I see kind of the same thing kind of happen around ketogenic, low carbohydrate nutrition too, because people want to know like, well, what do you eat? How much of it do you eat? And then there's like this kind of topic of, do I tell them how many grams of carbohydrates do I eat? Do I add the context of what workout that came into? Do I give them percentages or do I give them like a ketone blood test sample, like readings and things like that. And, and from what I understand, it tends to be a little bit of a, of a target that hasn't been either hasn't been well-defined or has a few different branches to it. And we just haven't really done maybe as clear of a job, at least to the general observers site as to like, well, what is kind of a low carb approach, a low carb approach, a strict ketogenic, a zero carb is another topic that's come up more recently now too. Uh, is that kind of what you've seen in the research literature too, where there's just like a pretty wide range of what people are considering low carb and uh, kind of how it's implemented? Completely. I think this is one of the things that, that I wouldn't say we've come up against. Actually, from a research perspective, it really excites me because I think we're scratching the surface actually on research into low carb because you, you hear the word keto. And it's actually the biggest gripe I have with my own work is the fact that I use the term keto and you say, well, what does that mean? it's a really good question because it means different things to different people and it it never it's never going to mean the same thing someone on a keto diet and for example doing the mileage you're doing you could be in ketosis and eat a lot of carbohydrate mm -hmm. now some people will tell you that's not ketogenic because it's over however many grams of carbs a day that it's been arbitrarily defined as today which is you know different every day as well but you're still in ketosis so ask the question what is keto and to me that it's a question that requires nuance and so with research as it is today, you'll see, you know, the, the study says, you know, looking at a ketogenic diet in this context, but actually I think we're scratching the surface in what sort of ketogenic diet, or what sort of diet is it? I think 
in future, we're going to get more specific in terms of is this, you know, really high fat, low protein, for example, which you see in research sometimes. And it kind of it worries me from a sports science perspective. I'm like, OK, so we'll see maybe a negative research finding on low carb diets and, and it's a protein restricted high fat diet. And you think, is it keto that's making them worse, which is the takeaway from the study? Or is it, you know, being low in protein or is it X, Y, Z? And there are lots of different ways that a keto diet can be formulated or a low carb diet or any of these things because of the lack of operational definition. What I think that means is that we need more nuance when we do the research and we need stricter, well, we need to try more things. For example, for someone that's very active and can get into ketosis, for example, with, you know, you can have 100 grams of carbs a day if your mileage is high. You talk about how your training differs day to day, well, so can your carbohydrate intake. And on, you know, when you're running 20, 30 miles, you can, you can you're pretty much be in ketosis no matter what you eat during that run and before that run. I mean, there's, um, there's one of my favorite recent studies was looking at a five-day ultramarathon and it wasn't keto at all, but they were just testing blood ketones in these athletes during the ultramarathon. And they were having on average, it was nine grams per kilogram of carbohydrate per day, which is, I mean, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> that's quite difficult to achieve. And they're all in ketosis that, that evening, every night for the ultramarathon because, because of the amount of glycogen they were getting through. And so then I look at them and think, well, is that a ketogenic diet because they're in ketosis? So it really does raise the question of, you know, just the nuances. And that's some of the, I've been doing some interview-based research, speaking to people on sort of long-term carbohydrate-restricted diets. And that's what you get is that whilst in research, we have to try and define things a certain way, actually in the sort of real world, people do keto diets all sorts of ways. And that's kind of the point, I guess, to an extent is without research, looking at best ways to do things, people have to find their own way, which is how it is right now. And I'm hoping in future we'll have, we'll be able to answer questions. So you can design intervention studies where you have two groups and you have one of them go strict keto, zero carbon, never had any carbohydrate at all. And you can have another group that maybe periodizes carbohydrate around exercise a bit more and they'll have something before their longer runs, for example. And you can directly compare the two and how it impacts performance, but we don't have that data for now. And so it becomes kind of a case of every person for themselves and they'll, they'll do their own. I mean, speaking to some people, they, they often tried everything they've gone keto and they're kind of not sure what to do so so they try it all that's not really a bad way to do it because you find you know what makes you feel good but um but no you're completely right it's it's a really difficult question to answer of, <laughs> of you're studying keto what is keto because i mean especially i'm in a lot of sports science so keto to us is probably very different to people looking into weight loss and things like that mm -hmm. yeah no it makes perfect sense and i think like uh yeah, I did an N of one experiment on myself in 2018, where I just tracked pretty strict, like what I was eating and was measuring uh, blood ketones for maybe two or three times a day, for the most part over the course of a three week build during what would be the highest carbohydrate timeframe during my training, in most cases, and I was still producing above 0.5 millimoles of blood ketones and often upwards to two you know, in the context of, you know, some of those higher carbohydrate days, but, you know, they were smashed in with, uh, like you said, these big training volume weeks, I was probably working out upwards to 20 hours per week when you added in everything from the running training and the strength work and things like that. So, uh, you know, having that versus some, you know, number of grams per day can look quite different. And, you know, I don't want to get too off track here, but it's, it's also kind of a one I find funny when I see people talk about like low carbohydrate as like hard to stick to or restrictive, because I'm thinking to myself, like 
Probably it would be in a lot of cases, but uh, for me personally, I probably, in some days I'll eat as much carbohydrate as a sedentary person on a moderate carbohydrate diet, just because I'm fueling two or three of me sometimes. So uh, you get that kind of nuance added to it when you get into the extreme world of, of, of ultra marathon. Um, did, one thing I want to follow up with that too, is like, so we, we do know, uh, and I see this get, get spoken about from time to time too, where it's like, what's the purpose of doing a low carbohydrate diet when we know like the act of running as far as, you know, folks like I do is going to induce a ketogenic response, uh, anyway. And, and I can appreciate that, that, that point. Um, but what we do know, I guess, at least from, from the faster study is that dietary manipulation is going to move the needle quite a bit more on fat oxidation rates across the spectrum of intensities. I think the faster study is obviously much more, uh, beneficial for somebody who's looking at the usage at like say 65% of your VO2 max or something that's a little more in the ultra marathon sphere versus looking at its, its, its application within like Olympic 5k runners or something like that. But uh, what I, I guess what my question around that is, is if we can manipulate our fat oxidation rates aggressively with diet relative to training induced, uh, manipulations, how do we kind of take that to the table when deciding if we're looking at it as the way I look at it, which the question should be how fat adapted do I need to be versus how fat adapted can I get? Because if I go zero grams of carbohydrate and train, obviously I'm going to get about as fat adapted as I probably can in terms of my fat oxidation rates, which can come for some trade-offs. So then it's like, I need to figure out where I need to move that needle so that I'm not sacrificing whatever benefits I could get from carbohydrate usage, but still hit that point. Is that, am, am I thinking, I guess maybe what I'm asking is, am I thinking along the right lines with that? Or is there, uh, do you have any criticism or points to add to that? No, not at all. So I think you're right in that I think we're kind of slowly waking up to the importance of fat oxidation as almost a concept in sports science. And that's blatantly obvious to people within ultra endurance exercise. But it's it's interesting how slow sometimes research is to catch up. I know there's uh, research recently on so Ironman triathlons and looking at fat oxidation as a predictor of Ironman success. And unsurprisingly, people that can burn more fat tended to do more well uh, tended to do better of course that doesn't mean that it's the only marker it's not you shouldn't strive for solely fat oxidation which is an important caveat i think because otherwise like you say the answer would be to you know to remove all carbs completely all the time um but this is where i think it's the nuance becomes really important of what are you training for so if you're training for 100 milers or beyond obviously fat oxidation becomes increasingly important as the distance goes up for individuals maybe that are doing marathons and half marathons it becomes more nuanced in terms of are you going to deplete your glycogen stores um in a marathon yes quite often that's where you have this sort of famous 20 mile bonk where people just completely they're, they're completely screwed and so that that's where you say okay someone maybe here can go through intervention to increase their fat oxidation and i always think about when i'm in my lab we do a lot of supplement work and you can look at things that maybe increase fat oxidation so if you look at RER shift to 0 0.2, 0 0.02, 0 0.03, and we get kind of excited because that's, you know, it's a, it's a big difference in the context of someone doesn't change anything else. You can go on a ketogenic diet and you shift your fat oxidation down to, you know, at, at least a 65% max and things like that. You can go from wherever you are to 0.7 in a week if you want to. 
Now that comes with, with caveats. I mean, people that have tried a keto diet and done it for a week, <laughs> they wouldn't want to run a marathon after a week of a keto diet. But it definitely puts into perspective the potential benefits of that kind of intervention. I think the only way people will know for sure is you can get your lab testing. And some people burn a lot of fat and maybe they're a marathon runner and they burn a lot of fat and they've never done a keto diet. And actually for someone like that, you think, is, is this kind of carbohydrate restriction, is that necessary for that person? If they don't experience bonking, if, they're, if they burn a lot of facts, often, especially with endurance runners, if you're doing fasted training sessions or just training in general, the more someone trains, the better they're going to be at burning fat without any change of diet. So some people will burn a lot of fat and they'll never have a problem. I think of half marathons as a good example of unless you're really, you know, unless you're not very, unless you're at the sub-elite level and very bad at burning fat, you're probably not going to be depleting your glycogen levels in that situation. But then you have the case of, you know, not everyone's running hour and a half or below to one hour, <laughs> half hours. Not, not everyone's running two hours, two hours, 30 in the marathon. For a lot of people, a marathon's a you know, three and a half, four hour event. Even for fast people, it's, it's a three hour event. Um, then the question, that's a question that we actually looked into as one of our case studies is, can someone do like a ketogenic diet, almost as like a short term tool to increase fat burning in the long term? And um, so we had uh, an ultra marathon runner who actually surprisingly we got him into the lab and we we're kind of expecting him to be you know burning huge amounts of facts he runs 100 miles he's quite a good ultra marathon runner we're expecting like a really low RER and just high rates of fat oxidation we had him at 65 percent of his VO2 max and actually he was he wasn't particularly good at burning fat at all his RER was fairly high so he's mainly a carbohydrate burner um and so we got him onto a ketogenic diet and then we took him back off a ketogenic diet we did six week interventions so we did six weeks keto and then six weeks just back onto carbohydrates and after that six weeks back on carbohydrates, he was still burning more fat than he was at the start. So you have things like that where a ketogenic diet full stop isn't necessary for everyone. And it becomes sort of trade-off between fat oxidation, carbohydrate oxidation, and maybe more glycolytic events. And um, I think really for me, I'm always thinking of nuance and everyone, everyone's in situations very individual, especially so my, my topic is endurance. And you think I think of endurance and I think it could be, it's anything from 800 meter runners up to, you know, people that are running for days on end, running across America, they're completely different sports. So I think the weighing up of, you know, fat oxidation versus carbohydrate oxidation is, it depends on, in, on so many things. And that's why, again, within the world of sports science, it's exciting because there's more research coming out, but there's still one study is never going to determine yes or no, should someone do keto? because you have all these nuances of distance of training status, you know, is it an elite athlete? Is it someone that's sort of trying to lose weight maybe? And then you've got a completely different situation of, you know, we, you might look at elite athletes and get them to do a 5k, for example, and keto is not gonna make them faster. Maybe it makes them slower. But if you tally that in with someone that's lost 30 kilograms, then I suspect it's making them faster. And it's kind of these indirect benefits. So I think there's always more nuance than maybe we originally thought, or I think it's very easy, especially in, in today's age with social media to have to simplify things and you see headlines of keto, yes, keto, no, et cetera. And actually it's always going to come down to that kind of individual need really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The way I've kind of been looking at it most recently is I think it's still really valuable and cool to see what the elite athletes, the Olympians are doing mm -hmm. if for nothing else, because you could just control so much with them because you kind of know their singular goal is to run as fast as they can at X mm -hmm. distance. 
and they're going to control everything from sleep to diets to their daily routine is probably going to be very consistent, especially with the runners. They just tend to be pretty uh, type A with that sort of stuff. So you can probably trust that there's not a lot of, not as much noise going on or life uncertainties happening uh, comparatively to the, to the average person. So then we can kind of see like when everything is more or less dialed in and perfect, this is what we see happening with this dietary shift where it gets interesting is like what you said, when you start introducing this to the general population who uh, has a lot of things that could, could weigh into the, to the equation that are kind of, I get what, I can't remember what you said, not secondary, but uh, um, kind of indirect benefits. Indirect benefits yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, weight loss is the big one, obviously it's like, if, yes, if someone loses 30 kilograms and they needed to lose 30 kilograms and they did that via a ketogenic diet, they are absolutely going to PR in the 5k, probably by a large margin. <laughs> and, and, and then it's, it, it welcomes the question, I think then as to like, what can you do to further improve? Or is this a situation where, uh, from lifestyle preferences and just ability to stick to something, is this person unique in that a strict ketogenic or even low carbohydrate diet is just something that they can plug and play without a whole lot of effort. And that keeps them at that right weight, which allows them to continue to run fast versus, okay, now we need to transform this person into a moderate high carbohydrate athlete. So they can get that extra couple percentage that we see in the elite athletes and, and hope that that doesn't send them spiraling backwards towards where they were in the first place with the extra weight and whatever other, you know, variables may have, may negatively impact their particular situation with the reintroduction of you know, baseline nutrition being carbohydrate. Yeah. And I think this is where sports science is kind of, there's a big push in sports science now to periodize nutrition. And I think the way it's kind of used right now in research is periodized nutrition will be fasted training sessions and having high carbohydrate days. What I'm interested in is what happens if rather than having the base of high carbohydrate and sort of playing around with that, if we have the base as low carbohydrate ketogenic and we play around sort of from the bottom up, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, and you're right, it's, I agree. The study of elite athletes is, is great because they, they live for, they live for what they do. And so you're getting this, you're controlling as much as you can. And in reality, a lot of people exercise performance is almost secondary. So you think a lot to a lot of people, the question of will carbohydrate make me a bit faster isn't actually the question they, they want to know because they'd rather sort of feel healthy, et cetera or feel if they feel good on a low carbohydrate diet they're not too motivated to change where it does get interesting is when you look at sort of so myra's i call it sort of optimizing performance so if we take out any kind of any question of uh what does someone want to do want to stay on from a health perspective what's going to make them faster from the basis of the ketogenic diet and that's where we're kind of looking at reintroducing carbohydrate and seeing how is this going to affect people um then yeah the question of what happens if you put them back onto this kind of moderate high carbohydrate is a really good question. And it's kind of what I wanted to do based on the case study we'd done before, because this, our, the, our case study, he, he felt great. And we were out there with, because I think another problem we have in, in nutrition and ketogenic research is we don't ask people how they feel. We, we measure all these physiological markers and we can, we see, you know, fat oxidation is this, ketones are this, et cetera. We don't ask someone, you know, how, how are you doing type thing. But we were with him on the run, um, still doing 12 kilometer loops. And every time we saw him in the final, uh, when he did with us, so where he's back on carbohydrate, he felt amazing. He was sort of buzzing, like just, he didn't want to stop and eat. He was just sort of just, yep, yeah, I'll take some food, sort of off. Whereas on the very first one, where he was strictly ketogenic and 
um, he was sort of trying to fuel with keto foods on his run. He just, he looked worse, he felt worse, so he, and yeah, I, I, he was miserable. And that kind of gets lost sometimes when, because sometimes someone can, especially when you think about just typical sort of training weeks, someone can get through a training week or someone can, you know, smash a training week and the numbers might look, not look significantly different. But you ask on how they feel and how everything's going around that and how that's impacting the rest of their life. And this is something that I picked up actually just interviewing people on ketogenic diets is one of the big things they feel. And this is what you hear, actually you hear anecdotally a lot of recovery reports on people recovering so much faster on a keto diet. And there's it's another area where there's really limited actual research on. There's one paper I can pick out, I think an old 2014 paper from Zajak et al, who looked at inflammatory markers post-exercise and found potential benefits from being keto. Other than that, it's it's kind of a bit of another one where we're relying on people people's own reports. I think actually it's we've got someone at my lab that's looking into that now as well, looking into inflammatory markers and recovery on keto. But it's another thing where I think taking into account everything rather than just numbers is kind of what we need to do in this space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's another really interesting like anecdotal conversation with that, that one rings a lot in the ultra running community about mm -hmm. uh, most people that have stuck to a low carbohydrate diet that I talk to. That's one of the first things they, they cite as I could, you know, I could bend my knees the day after a hundred miler, mm -hmm. which I could never do before. And some of yeah. them, I mean, Jeff Browning, I think is probably the best example of this because now he's almost 50 years old and he's been doing hundred milers since his thirties. And so he had like 16 of them done on a moderate high carbohydrate approach. And then however many he's done since then following a lower carb approach. And that was one thing that stood out to him the most. Now, obviously that's one person and the best uh, kind of counter I have heard to that is we also kind of have a bit of a, I don't know if I call it a routine, but a, uh, a desire as an alternative community where it's kind of a celebratory day after the race. So it's like, I, I do wonder some, to some degree, at least when we're talking specifically about the ultra marathon cohort, mm. if them deciding to structure their diet just led to a cleaner overall post-race routine versus the whole, like, I just ran a hundred miles, I'm going straight to the buffet and then I'm going to have some beer and then we have this and that. And then if they eliminated a good chunk of that by saying, Hey, now I'm a low carb ketogenic person and I need to kind of stick to that. Did they clean up other things that weren't necessarily due to the low carbohydrate side of things, but more so just to overall diet quality post-race. Um, but you know, you have to also include all the other things like their lower exogenous carbohydrate fueling during the race itself. How does that contribute to any sort of, uh, you know, post race ramifications from a soreness and a recovery standpoint. And these are things like you mentioned, I think will be fun to kind of study and hopefully get more answers to versus anecdotes as we push forward in the research. Yeah, completely. And it's interesting you mentioned the kind of yeah, recovery aspect because one of the things, because I've been, one of the areas I'm looking into is keto adaptation, actually asking people about their own experience of it rather than just looking at numbers. And I remember there's a, one report I got where I said, you know, at what point did you know you were keto adapted? And the person replied just saying, well, they felt awful. And then without even thinking about it, they had their highest ever training, like month era cyclist. They put about four times as many miles as they'd ever put in before on the bike. And that's, <laughs> they got to the end of the month and thought, oh, I think this, this is working for me now. Um, and so it kind of comes back down to, from an adaptation perspective, like that's another anecdote of recovery. And that's why we need the data. Mm -hmm. Because without that, like you say, especially in just people's everyday life, there are so many things going on. A lot of the time, if someone 
changes their diet they're also maybe they're training more maybe like you say is it is it actually the carbohydrate they're cutting out is it just diet quality is it you know they've, they've stopped drinking beer is a, is a great one so you've always have and this is the problem just with ketogenic research in general is that you're changing a lot of things and so this is why I, I love ketone ester research because you're able to isolate what our ketones doing specifically because without that at the moment you know you reduce carbohydrates but what else are you reducing what else are you increasing a lot of the time we hear a lot you know is a keto diet beneficial for lowering carbohydrate or you see an increase in protein so often and so you say is a benefit is is it you increasing your protein maybe that's for example recovery is a good one there maybe it's an increase in protein that's helping recovery so you have a lot of things going on which is exactly why as you say it's it, it's a future research will tell eventually but research always moves slower than we'd like and that's why we have to speculate no doubt and i think it, it is interesting to think about a scenario in which say a lower carb or ketogenic diet would improve recovery because then you open up a whole can of worms when you even look at the variables that historically would be kind of a negative in the low carb category which would be just you know training intensity quality so you may move from a scenario where the long term doesn't necessarily reflect the short term so like maybe i give back a few percentage points in performance in any one given workout but if my recovery improves and now i'm able to do two or three more quality sessions at that given intensity in my buildup above and beyond what I would have been able to before, does that in the long term translate to better overall fitness, assuming I'm able to access the glyc my glycogen on race day and I'm doing something short, short and glycolytic enough to, to demand that? I think these are all really interesting questions that we don't have answers to, but hopefully, hopefully we do. <laughs> thanks to people like yourself in the future. <laughs> yeah, and this is, this is just why research needs to be done. And I think it's also why we have to be very careful how we interpret research as it stands, because it's very easy to look at a, a three, four-week study and, and put a lot of value in it, which, and there is obviously value to be had in these, but it's also the context we need to surround those in. Whether they suggest potential benefits or, or the opposite, potential impairments, I think there's always and it's like i say again it, it's 2021 so nuance isn't isn't popular but right. it, it's always that case of we just need to kind of take things with a pinch of salt and and also just on an individual level it's very different to to a research level because i always think about things like you know the recovery question i think you know i can't say confidently ketogenic diets improve recovery but if someone's found that their recovery is really great on the diet they're following whether it's the lower carbohydrate, whether it's the ketones that are circulating in their body, whether it's their training, regardless of what it is, maybe it's their sleeping better, who knows? But for that individual person, it's not actually that relevant <laughs> because, mm -hmm. because they, they found what they found, which I guess is the distinction between research and practice. Yeah, no, that's spot on. And I think uh, that's why like when I'm coaching people you, with whether it's their just their specific training or if they're looking to make a dietary implement implementation on low carbohydrate or, or whatever, I usually revert back to that. Well, let's, let's let the workouts be the guide. Let's let performance be the guide here because especially with ultra marathon, like, I mean, there's tons of variables that we just don't even know about yet, much less are looking to research. So if we see improvement, uh, the type of improvement we're looking for, it's almost irrelevant at the end of the day, if it's producing the result you're looking for. So sometimes I think that one is the, is the, the only one we can confidently <laughs> lean on yeah. to some degree. You can always make the argument of like level of improvement where like, let's say I improve someone by 8% on a, 
low carbohydrate diet, you can always ask the question, well, maybe they would have improved 11% on a moderate carbohydrate. And it's a fair question to ask. Uh, but it's, um, I find most people that I'm working with and most people in general, I would imagine have a pretty deep history in at least moderate carbohydrate. And it's more, it's less often that I'm working with someone who said, oh yeah, I've been doing pretty strict ketogenic diet for the majority of my life. And in fact, I don't think I've ever worked with someone who said that. I'm not sure that person exists. <laughs> yeah, probably not. I'm, I'm, I'm actually interested about that piece of the puzzle though. Cause like, who knows? And assuming like we don't find incredible flaws with this and everyone bails at the same time, uh, who knows, like, you know, in 20 years, maybe we do have that 30 year old whose parents were really into low carbohydrate. And they're like, yeah, that's just been my reality since basically the beginning that I've been in some shape or form, low carbohydrate, or at least the fat macronutrient has made up the foundation of their diet versus carbohydrates. And then maybe we're dealing with a completely different, uh, kind of set of circumstances. Yeah, completely. And that's, again, these things are exciting because when, when you say things, I think I, I look forward to studying those types of people because studying keto adaptive people is is just so interesting because they're so different to the standard population just you look at the two and it's it's almost it's funny to believe that and you can put out the exact same you know we're looking at we do a lot of research in cycling and um and you can look and you get the same end result of you know a certain power output a certain time and you look at the metabolisms you're like i can't believe these people are doing the same thing because they look so different and um it's funny with ultra marathoning or ultra endurance as well because i I always say that I think ketogenic diets or low carbohydrate diets and ultra endurance exercise are like from a research perspective are a, a match made in hell simply because they're the work they're the hardest things to study because trying to study ultra endurance is just it's an impossible task because you can't you know make a nice controlled lab-based study and have everyone do you do an intervention and see if someone's got better or worse because there's just so many variables that can affect this things like this yeah and I think that is that's just the interesting thing about ultra marathon in general. We have way more anecdotes than we do concrete evidence. Mm. And where, where I always get a little bit of a kick is if like, uh, I mean, I'm fine with people picking a path that they think works best and working with that for themselves and the people they're helping. Um, at least as a starting point where, where I start to push back a little bit is when you draw a channel so narrow that, um, you're in a position where you're extrapolating forward the research we do have, which is high quality into areas where it's not necessarily going to be nearly as impactful as it would for the original intent. And I think maybe the most obvious one in ultra marathon is like the implication of short interval sessions. I think they're very valuable and ultra runners should do them in some shape or form as they build up towards a race itself. But if we're looking at like the, the quality of that short interval session, when it's typically probably going to be performed about as far away from the race itself as you can get away with, since it's not specific to race intensity, it's like, how much is a 2% increase on doing your interval this way versus that way going to actually impact mile 80 of a hundred mile, four months down the road when you're actually in that environment. And, and when I think about that, I think like, you know what, the, the, the real answer to that is probably like, how much faith does that person put in that? So if they're going in there, mile 80 thinking, I just know those two to three minute interval sessions that I did 16 weeks ago are going to really get me from 80 to 85 smoothly, then it's probably going to help. But then it's a psychological mm -hmm. advantage versus an actual physiological advantage. And I think that's just, that's just one example of many that we kind of banter around about in, in, the, in the ultra running community. 
Yeah, I think actually you mentioned the psychological aspect of of any kind of intervention. I think it's it's another thing that's been massively underlooked. And we have this, and it's the reason that I'm doing interview-based research and speaking to people, because what what you find is, well, if someone thinks something's going to work, or if someone feels a certain way, well, that's going to make a difference to how they perform. It's just like if someone feels dreadful and you say, or you say, let's I'm going to put you on a diet, and it's you know, well, they're very dependent on carbohydrates. So in the endurance world, everyone's come from a background where they're told carbohydrate is what they need to perform. So my own background is rowing, and I remember we'd have sort of double sessions and we'd have like an hour in between and we'd be instructed to go and go to the shop and get ourselves some carbohydrate and we'd be told to bring you know a carbohydrate drink in our bag with us for the end of sessions so we could get it straight away down us and so when you come from something like that you you have to appreciate that the psychological aspect and it becomes even more important ultra endurance or ultra endurance exercise i'm i'm convinced even even outside of that the psychological aspect of just diet and exercise itself, I think is a really important aspect that, that sometimes does get overlooked. And so we have things now, things like profile of mood state questionnaires and stuff that are used more often alongside these standard methods we use. And I think that's really important. It's going to be important moving forward because, yeah, just like you say, it's these things, if something's not going to have an effect physiologically, well, an effect's an effect at the end of it. If something's going to benefit you psychologically, then you kind of want to know why, but also on an individual level, who cares? <laughs> mm-hmm. Hey folks, just a reminder, this episode sponsors include Bioptimizer's Breakthrough Magnesium, and you can get 10% off and a 365-day money-back guarantee, as well as Element Electrolytes offering a free eight-serving sample pack. Head to the show notes or to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors for links and details. Yeah. So that, that's actually a question I wanted to ask you because you just have a very unique perspective given that you're seeing a lot of these reports kind of come in from research subjects and, and probably stuff that never gets published that just comes across your desk that kind of highlights the breadth at which we're dealing with here. Do you, do you notice any like con- consistency like where people doing endurance sport following a low carbohydrate diet are reporting a certain amount of carbohydrate on average, or what is the kind of the, the range in that, that you're seeing? Uh, Cause that, like we kind of talked about already, that's where a lot of the confusion comes. It's like, you can see something where it's like, oh, this person's eating 35% of their diet from carbohydrate versus the person who's like less than 5%. And I think those are probably two very different scenarios. Yeah, no, it's such a good question. Because and actually we, we hope to publish research based on the interviews we've done that kind of covered this kind of, because it's, it's the same question we had, which was our research question was, what do people on keto diets actually do? Because I think, especially when, you, when you're looking at research and they'll, they'll put these sort of precise numbers in, and I always wonder, is this what people do? So a great example in research is, you know, they'll stay keto and then you'll do a race, say like a 16K time trial is quite common on a bike. And the control group will have carbohydrate and the keto group will have like a keto meal. And I think, would a keto athlete have coconut oil, as their pre-race snack type thing. Um, and so, I mean, the answer really is that there's an enormous range of what people do. The, the only consistency is the inconsistency to a point. Um, and you have, I think it's something that shines through for me is that you get, and this is just in their day-to-day lifestyle where some people will have their carbohydrate be very, very low. And some people are much more nuanced about it. And I think a lot of that from what I've 
seen comes down to the type of exercise they do and, and their reasons for doing it. So I think from the people I've spoken to, what I kind of gather, especially in the longer stuff, so the ultra endurance athletes are much more, uh, what the best word would be, not trivial as such, but they're much more open or they're much, they use more carbohydrate, I think, and are much more strategic about the carbohydrate use. I think that comes with the appreciation that, um, that they can and that it may benefit them in certain situations. Now I say that there are some people that will do 100 milers and not take any carbohydrate on board at all and so there's definitely there's no one way to do it which to me is what makes it really interesting so in terms of what the trends that i have come across is that and i think for me coming from a background where my colleagues aren't in like low carbohydrate ketogenic diet research we're kind of quite unique our little group within the university and within sports science is that i think people's perception of keto outside of the kind of keto world is very different to what it actually looks like because i think the perception of keto is you know and it's it comes back to the whole it's not sustainable etc is that you know i'll get asked well what do you do on race day or what do you do when you're socializing and all these kind of things and so the one consistent thing really is that for the people i've spoken to that have done it for years and years we're looking at so chronic keto adaptations people that have maintained it I always say to them they've sustained the unsustainable um is that when they're answered those questions is that they they plan their training around it and they don't sweat the kind of one days here and there so the only real consistency is that in people that have maintained it long term that you know if they're if it's their child's birthday they'll have a slice of cake if you know if they're seeing friends they've not seen for three years or two years because of of lockdowns and stuff they'll have a beer with them and if they're really worried about it, they'll they'll plan a long run the day before, the day after. And that's kind of, that is the one consistency. And I think that that's an important thing to get across because a lot of the time, the biggest sort of criticism I hear from people about keto is the idea that, you know, you can't sustain it because who can never eat carbohydrate? And actually the answer is that with exception, but the majority of people that I've spoken to on keto diets that have sustained it for a long period of time, it's sustainable because they, they make sure it fits into their lifestyle, which is different to different people, but they allow for that. And that's not re even really a product of training or ultra endurance. It's kind of a product of just fitting into the way you live. Um, because really the, yeah, like I say, the only, the only consistency within exercise is for the longer, longer endurance athletes is that there's, they've tried everything and people have come to different conclusions. It's a bit different. I think with people that, uh, performing sort of more typical endurance exercise so your 10ks and your half marathons where i see fairly consistency people that want to go fast will add carbohydrate just not often the night before is what people tend to do um but with longer stuff you get a, such a range of you know from the people like you mentioned that will stick completely keto the whole way through from start to finish and then the people that will yeah, they're sort of two days out they'll start eating some sweet potato and they'll do that again and then they'll eat carbohydrate quite liberally throughout so i think yeah to me it's the most interesting thing is just how different everyone is um and i think that's an important thing because people often it's easy to pigeonhole keto as this is keto and this is what they do and this is why it's bad whereas actually i think it's there's a lot more to it and i think people following keto diets to me you kind of the 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 assumption I think a lot of people have is that it's very dogmatic and it's very rigid, whereas actually 
what what seems clear to me is it's the exact opposite it's actually extremely flexible and there are so many ways to do it and people doing it are actually they're kind of constantly experimenting and trying new things it's almost the opposite of what the perception is i think mm-hmm. now these are all really good points i think they they run in line with some of the conversations i'll have with folks who are kind of interested in taking on a project like this but making it more sustainable or more intuitive and i tell them mm-hmm. i'm like yeah life happens and uh you know i, I don't, the last thing i want to say is like you know because you're doing this diet, that means you better be in bed by eight every night. And when your friends go out, you better, you know, stay away from, you know, any carbohydrate and uh, you better take some hard liquor versus beer or something like that. Uh, but it's uh, where it gets interesting, I think, is when people start to like broaden their perspective as to what the kind of framework that they're building their nutrition onto is where it gets interesting because most people are kind of pre-programmed where there's like this 24 hour reset where I have to eat this in 24 hours and whether it's weight loss or macronutrient ratios, they're like, okay, I did this today. Now reset, now reset, now reset. Whereas I think you get a lot more freedom or like what you said, where maybe a low carbohydrate diet, maybe even shines here is you have a situation where maybe we look at it through a three-day window where let's say on Friday, you get invited to go out with your friends and you eat twice as many carbohydrates as you were supposed to that day. Well, that's not a, it's not like a big loss. You just have to accommodate it in a way where, like you said, well, maybe you move your long run to that next morning and you push yourself a little back, back into like a ketogenic state from that, or, or maybe you decide, okay, I'm going to just do an intermittent fasting approach next morning. So instead of having the carbohydrate I would have had with that first meal of the day, I'm just going to have no carbohydrate or fast entirely for that meal and kind of, you know, recorrect on that. So when they're looking at it through like a three day lens versus a one day lens, there's just a lot more flexibility as to where they move these parts. Or the other way I like to look at it is if you think of it from just like a, if you look at it from a budgetary standpoint, it's like long-term and short-term spending. It's like, I could spend a little too much money today and then continue on and never regain that. Or I can adjust the next two or three days to account for that. And at the end of three days, I'm no worse for the wear. Mm, Completely. I think the flexibility thing comes in as well with one other thing actually I've noticed is people tend to get more flexible as they understand the diet more. So you find that often for six months, for 12 months, someone will be quite rigid and not deviate from the diet barely at all. Then as you get on, actually, it's, it's amazing how flexible you can be without actually you know it's kind of the old perception i think of keto was if you have carbohydrates it's going to take you two weeks to get back into ketosis and things like this i used to hear on sort of old talks i'd listen to and then actually what you see is that i mean even outside of i mean it's kind of different when you're when you're an ultra endurance athlete because <laughs> you can get back into ketosis just like that by doing a run but even for people that aren't especially active once you're adapted it's it's amazing how quickly your body will get you back into ketosis and it really makes you realize from a long-term maintenance perspective, just kind of how flexible you can be, like you say. And that's without even taking extra sort of steps around that, like adding an exercise already in fasting. Um, it just, yeah, as you get on, you definitely see that increase in flexibility and just, um, well, it's just kind of those lifestyle steps, I suppose, to make it something that's going to last a long time. Because yeah, if, the, if you have these, you know, if you're trying to change your whole life around your diet, it's it's kind of a route to just, well, a route to it being hard to maintain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like to look at it through, like through experience and kind of just learning about it, getting to recognize the tools you have available to you. So you're more or less 
manipulating the diet around the lifestyle that is going to be most meaningful to you versus the other way around. And I think that's where people find it more sustainable and less likely to kind of fall off the wagon, so to speak. But, um, you know, one thing we've been kind of touching on a bit here and there, but I want to pry into a little bit is just this, uh, this adaptation timeline, which I think is, you know, one that gets argued about a fair bit is to like, you know, you'll see a study where they put someone on a ketogenic diet who is otherwise following a moderate high carb diet and they're coming up with results and you know the easy pushback from the the low carb community is well they didn't do it long enough if you would have done it for eight weeks 12 weeks however many weeks they would have seen a much different result uh i'm always curious about that as a time frame standpoint which i think you've described pretty decently already just with you know the level of flexibility you have after you've put your body kind of through that cycle for a while uh, the other thing I always wonder about though, too, is especially when we're dealing with competitive athletes and we're looking at peak performance is a, any dietary manipulation to the degree of switching from, I mean, essentially a, doing a 180 on your macronutrient profile, even a couple of weeks before peak performance seems at odds with what I would recommend to do in any scenario. Like if I'm working with a, a client and they're on a moderate carbohydrate diet and we're two weeks from the race and they say, you know what, I think I'm going to stop eating the you know 12 food staples I have in my diet and switch to these 12 new ones. I'm going to say, maybe let's wait till after the race, <laughs> unless, unless things yeah, are going so badly that we're just kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're bucketing water out of the boat at that point. But uh, in most scenarios, I'm going to suggest we make that big lifestyle change dietarily after their goal event and play around with it then. Is that something you see with the research we do have or the pro as, as a potential problem on top of possibly just the length of adaptation that may take? Yeah, completely. I think you're right. I think I, I find the keto adaptation, I guess, debate, I find it quite entertaining because I kind of, I think both sides, there's, there are elements of truth to it. And the reason is because we know so little about keto adaptation. I think there's an element where you can say that no matter how long you give it, it will never be long enough to some people. And I think that's that's a fair criticism. Um, I, I also, I think the point you make is 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 extremely important to know is that in any kind of performance, elite performance, obviously, but even, you know, very few people are going to change their diet. No one would recommend, at least, I think it's safe to say, change your diet and now in a month's time, this is your big race. Um, saying that, I think, like it's it's another point that comes down to nuance because you have to understand in research, you know, it's very hard to say, right, we're going to do a six month intervention on people and look at, you know, we're going to make them stop eating cars for six months. We're going to monitor everything because it's it'll be expensive and it'll, it'll be really difficult. So you can learn huge amounts about metabolism and ketogenic diets over three to four, five, six week intervention studies. But then where I draw the line is saying, a keto diet isn't going to work because of you know this study here that has a three-week intervention and a race at the end because no one would do that in the real world and it's it doesn't make sense and so whilst you can still completely i mean some of the most useful studies to me and me learning about this has, have been short interventions i mean you get i mean in the early 2000s there was a push to sort of one week low carbohydrate diets and they're really interesting to read but you know they're certainly not a uh a nail in the coffin for low carbohydrate diets because we know and this is where my perspective of keto adaptation is that well to be completely frank we, we just don't know 
we don't know anything about how long it takes. And, and the reason for that is that I think we always, in research in general, we put a lot of value in what we can measure, understandably, because you know you can only report what you measure. Putting loads of value in unmeasurables obviously is, is futile. But that kind of leads to this slightly reductionist approach where we're looking for markers that are going to tell us if someone's keto adaptive, for example. So you'll see ketone levels or you'll see rates of fat oxidation in athletes or you'll see you know all sorts of markers here and there things like uric acid and all these things which when put together might give you a picture of someone of someone's adaptation status but they don't give you anywhere near the full picture so for example i mean the first case study i did we had our ultra endurance runner run just 65 percent vo2 max on a treadmill after one week on his keto diet his fat oxidation was as high as it ever got basically his RER was at 0.7.71. It was flat out. He was burning nothing but fat. But I don't think, I hope no one would think, right, this person is now keto adapted. It'd been seven days. He felt dreadful. <laughs> so I think the, and the problem is we're, we're never going to know exactly because yeah, there's so much going on and it's definitely, there's no, it's never going to be one marker that tells us you are keto adapted or you aren't keto adapted. And we can learn more and we can find more markers but to me right now what i think is that you have to take like a hybrid approach where yes things are important you know fat oxidation to an extent is important although i think we put too much value in it because we can measure it if you know, if, if you're burning as much fat as you have well after a week i don't think that's going to tell you that much more about keto adaptation it's going to tell you that you're following a diet just like blood ketones it might tell you that you know someone is in ketosis but it doesn't tell you the rate of ketone usage etc so i think Again, this comes back to what I think is just criminally underutilized, which is firstly questionnaires and psychological markers, also just asking people how they feel. So to me, the best way we can work out if someone's adapted to a point is combining these kind of physiological markers together with also an approach of asking an athlete, how are you feeling? How is your training? Because we know that in these kind of shorter studies that athletes struggle to maintain their training volume which to me is a very good marker that someone's not adapted. But that in itself has its own problems because if you're, say, anti-keto diets and you, you might believe that at the elite levels, someone will never retain the training volume. So then someone's never keto adapted. So I think, again, this is one where researchers will never agree and you always have that same argument. Um, and to me, the way I look at it is that we have to take all the studies in context and we have to ask people, we'll take individual accounts um, we have to take them more seriously because also there's no one response. So in my interviews with people, there'll be some people that say they felt fine from the get-go. There was no, there was no downturn in performance and they were sort of, they didn't really notice the difference. And there are some people that tell me they could, they could barely run for two weeks because they felt that bad. And so you get this really clear difference in response. And so these two, these two sort of people are going to have very different sort of ideas themselves about when were they keto adapted. So I think a long way around saying I don't know is that the answers are going to be different for, for different people. And in, as researchers, the best thing we can do right now is learn more by asking individuals their perspective on it and combining, almost taking like a multi-systems approach to it by saying, right, what are the physiological markers saying and what is the athlete saying? How are they actually feeling? And then just understanding when we look at research that there is this individual response, that there are differences in it, and that actually we're never going to know if six months is what you need or 12 months is what you need, because that research realistically is, it's, it's not going to happen. 
which is a yeah. shame. I'd love to see it, but but it, it's not realistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and well, this is a really interesting topic to me as an ultramarathon athlete and coach because you know when I'm working with folks who are following a low carbohydrate diet, that's a question that they want to know the answer to, mm -hmm. or they at least want to get close to it because they want to be able to trust their approach going into the race itself and not welcome in unneeded anxiety and things like that. So, you know, I always tell my clients, it's like, look, if you go into a lab and get your fat oxidation test done and all that stuff, like these are, these are numbers that we can look at and we can use and potentially put together a game plan around your fueling strategy on race day. But what I like to lean on even more is a lot of times is we'll use their long runs in kind of almost two specific purposes where, you know, they're oftentimes pushing up near the end of their training plan to some four or five hour sessions. And I like to kind of split them into two categories where category one is let's test your fat adaptation in the field. Let's see what happens when you don't fuel for that four hour long run and just have water and electrolytes. Are you like struggling near the end? Or do you feel like you're almost kind of like getting into the swing of things as you push into that versus, um, the other side of it, where eventually we need to get around to practicing the strategy you're going to use on race day, which most of my clients are going to use some amount of carbohydrate. And then it's like, we're, we definitely want to kind of practice that. So once we kind of confirm in the field that your fat adaptation is where we want it to be, um, or as best we can without actually knowing, uh, then it becomes time to start practicing what you're going to do on race day. And that's what I've done to kind of, that I've seen the most success with the folks I've worked with that. Um, it sounds like it's kind of in line with what you're saying too, where it's like a, uh, it's, it's learning from what they're reporting back or what they're experiencing versus like what we, what we want them to see or want to have happen based on what's available to us on paper. Um, admittedly, it was more driven by the fact that most of my clients just aren't going to go in and get a metabolic <laughs> test done. So I have some that do, but you know, the access to that is going to be just a little, a little higher than, than the training itself in most cases. Yeah. And the thing is with these kind of metabolic tests is they're hugely valuable, but I think the sort of tests you mentioned in the field are also, they're just as valuable in their own way. So like I mentioned our athlete who we had one week keto diet and he was, his RL was as low as going to get his fat oxidation was super high. But if you put him out for a four hour long run, he wouldn't have been able to complete it because he felt completely dreadful because he had his, he's on his first week without carbohydrate. So the metabolic data itself would say, Oh, he's burning a lot of fat. His RL is low. So he's going to be avoiding glycogen depletion, et cetera but that will never tell you the full story because he's certainly not adapted. So it's kind of about obviously in a, in a coaching setting, you don't have the access to the metabolic testing, but in an ideal world, even within research, it's kind of taking that hybrid approach of, okay, like what are their numbers looking like? And also like, what is their actual output? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, uh, that's an interesting specific person too. I know I had Evan Dunphy on the podcast a while back, who's a 50 kilometer race walker and, and he was uh, part of some of the studies done. And the funny thing about him is he, he, he was exactly that person you were talking to. He felt miserable when he was on the low carbohydrate diet, but his fat oxidation rates were through the roof. So it was, it was one of those scenarios. Granted, I think he was maybe doing the diet for two weeks. The, the interesting thing he reported, reported about though, that I found funny was he said like, he was glad he did it and would maybe do it again at like the beginning of a season or like right before the structure training. Cause he said he felt so miserable that when he returned to his normal feeling strategy, it was like 
he had way more confidence and he was running so much or walking, I guess, so much faster yeah. that, that it was almost like he, he, he exposed himself to a level of difficulty that would take a lot of stress on his body to get to from a training stimulus. So it was almost like he put his mind through like a really tough state for long enough that he started to appreciate or he redefined what hard was is maybe the way to say it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I should mention too, he was bronze at the Olympics this year in the 50 kilometers. So congrats to Evan for uh, you know putting all that work to <laughs> work into a medal this year. Uh, but yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I mean, you can you can make the argument about his length of doing it and all that stuff. And but but it's so I'm always curious about what people find both valuable and invaluable about their experiences with it. And, and the more people I talk to, the more I come to the conclusion that it's like you just almost gotta take it down to the individual level and, and also consider whether they're legitimately interested in it or not. And, you know, as a coach, I'm very hesitant to like have a client come in and make that part of their startup where it's like, all right, let's look at your nutrition and I'm going to give you the best case for low carb. It's like, usually I'm more inclined to just ask them how they feel with the nutrition they are doing. And if they're interested in making a change or want to make a change, or we see reason for them to, like massive digestive issues historically in the later stages of their races and, you know, big energy swings and things like that, you know, that would maybe be a scenario in which I would say, Hey, there's another approach that you may want to take a look at. But ultimately I think it's, it's, it's like most education, you kind of have to wait for them to come to you before trying to force anything onto somebody. Yeah, completely. I think for a lot of people, it's kind of, they came into it because they were trying to fix a problem. Mm-hmm. And so they then, logic works if they haven't got the problem there's a real questionnaire of you know is there an actual benefit and that's where there's always like a a combination in practice you've got to i mean research is really important and i'm hoping for example my research we kind of you kind of set an idea you 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 set these routes where people can then you're better informed to make decisions but that doesn't mean that people are going to all do the same thing that's never going to say there's never going to be one best way and i mean you mentioned yes i mean gi issues i think are of such a common reason for people to start going keto because they want to increase their fat oxidation, reduce their need for like in-race feeding and things like that. And it comes up a lot of the time. I think that and kind of just curiosity. That's why I've noticed in, in the kind of ultra endurance space is that people just like trying things a lot. And mm-hmm. so the ones that are still on it are the ones that felt great. And that and that's kind of how you want it to be is that, you know, if, a lot, if everyone's tried it, the ones that have stayed on it are the ones that have found that they've got better. And the ones that haven't stayed on it will they've tried it and they're no worse for it. And now they know that, that it's not for them. I think that's kind of a good place to be. And that's where for me, at least looking at kind of the diet world, which is often quite tribal, it's kind of like a call for let's kind of try and meet in the middle and say, look, I, not many people are going to sit down and tell you that keto is the way to go in anything you do. But especially, I think, in, especially for ultra endurance based sport where there is, like a, a good rationale for it it's like okay there's a there's a place here where you can say right especially in an off season let's give this a go and, and see how you feel and and you kind of work from there and i know for example just going back to the case study we did when our um our participant went back and when we when he finished the study he didn't stay keto but his carbohydrates were noticeably lower than when he very first started the study so we kind of met at like a place where he felt comfortable at and actually interestingly he said that like going up to however many sort of 150 200 grams of carbs a day he felt like he was like going crazy he felt like he was eating like loads of carbs because suddenly once you've gone down to like low 
suddenly 150 grams feels like you're kind of like eating every carb you see. So I think it's definitely a case of, for me, I want to see how we can kind of bridge the gap with with the kind of, I guess the kind of diet wars is the kind of way people will put it and see, can we just use this as it's a tool kind of rather than it's the thing to do or it's the thing to avoid which you, you kind of hear as well and mm-hmm. see right it's kind of a, a way to solve a problem if a problem arises for someone whether that be gi issues whether someone maybe is you know running marathons but still carrying more weight than they'd like which you see quite often i think that's that's kind of where i, I see the future going with because i think especially with keto diets i think they're becoming well they're definitely becoming more mainstream i think they're becoming more accepted within the remit of research and exercise as well um with that you just kind of get you get a lot of twitter wars yeah yeah as is with every topic on twitter though so i think we have good, good company in all genres <laughs> the, the the other area that i wanted to really talk to you about kind of zooms a little bit more exclusively on the low carb groups or folks that have already found all right this is the approach i want to try or i've been doing this and i've seen enough success that i want to just keep doing it, but I'm very open to fine tuning it is the fueling of the low carbohydrate or keto diet individuals. So as I understand it, um, and I think even just if we want to like, look at some of the research on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have this other movement of the train your gut group where it's like, now it's not even enough to just say, I'm going to follow a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. I'm going to actually bombard my digestive system with as much sports fuel during my runs and things so that I create this environment in which I can tolerate just a freakishly high amount of intra run or intra race fueling. Uh, so like, if we look at that and that bears true, it would stand to reason that if you go the opposite direction and more or less cut a lot of that product out of your day-to-day life, you're probably less likely to be able to tolerate as much of it during an event itself. So then it leaves the low carb keto athlete with the question of, well, what do I fuel with? Do I fuel with fats, which I always have found is a little, uh, kind of mistaken because it's like, why would you introduce an external, uh, fueling source when the fuel tank on board is going to be large enough for even the leanest endurance athlete in most contexts. So in that case, it's like, why, why welcome a digestive issue with that fuel substrate? Then they're like, so do I eat nothing? <laughs> and, and some do do that to a, to a degree. Uh, but for me, it's always been about defending muscle glycogen, the small fuel tank, even if you're low carb keto, and it just becomes a question of how much is enough or how much is too much. And where do we draw that line? So like with your research, what have you learned about just the fueling practices of low carbohydrate keto athletes? And has there been any kind of clear leader in the clubhouse, so to speak? Um, it's a great question. I think the important point here is the kind of question of optimization, because you're right. I know some people will can, that can run incredible distances with nothing, which as a feat is, I think it's monumental and it's, it's very impressive. If I'm to look at what is the optimal way to fuel, even for keto athletes, we we theorize that carbohydrate is still beneficial um now again this is it's an area where theory is all we have because there's very little well there's no research looking at you know keto adaptive people taking carbohydrate no no research of note really there's limited work done so in terms of what people do it's a bit of a free-for-all when you get into ultra endurance um what i do find is that there's 
consistently less need for carbohydrate feeding. I think that that's a, a real big thing for a lot of people because of how common GI issues are as you increase distances. And just, and also actually interestingly, often, especially when you get into these ultra distances, I've, I've had people tell me how one of the things they like so much about keto isn't as such actually the benefits of keto itself. It's just one less thing to worry about when they're running because they don't have to constantly think about where their next carbohydrate is going to come from. So when you get away from the, the idea of having, so, I mean, yeah, the train your gut stuff and people trying to consume, I think the recommendations are 60 to 90 grams an hour right now, carbohydrate. And some people can do that. And for some people, that's just something they'll never, ever achieve. They just they can't keep it down. Um, and for those people, it's, it's one less thing to worry about because suddenly you're not having to think your whole, your whole run isn't, okay, where, where am I getting my next carbohydrate? Or, oh God, I've got to have another one and things like that. Now, the amount of carbohydrate or the optimal amount is always going to be dependent on the type of exercise as always, the type of endurance. But often, I mean, our, in our case study, I think the carbohydrate consumption was 40 to 45 grams an hour, which to me seems fairly consistent with what I've spoken to a, a number of people that do kind of 30 to 45 grams an hour, where you're still taking in you know, fair amounts of carbohydrate there. But it tends to be an amount that these people find tolerable. And it's, it's kind of reducing the stress of trying to take in crazy amounts because you do get you get people that can consume 90 grams of carbohydrate an hour but to me these are the outliers and they're the ones that have spent a lot of training time training their gut which fair enough but yeah i think that's i i've, I've not come across too many people do more than that other than out of kind of curiosity where i do i know some people would just well they'll take as much carbohydrate as they can just see like how much can i stomach um but even people i've spoken to that can stomach more on their keto diet don't they don't do it it was kind of just a way of well giving yourself confidence in the amount you do is i'm going to take in as much as i can is it making me faster and can i actually do it but they tend to come down to i've not come across many people taking more than about 45 grams an hour and that's in prolonged endurance races mm -hmm. really i think with these people it's it's because fat adapted people are so good at burning fat it's just a case of preventing <laughs> preventing depletion of glycogen and preventing like hypoglycemia and really to do that, you don't need that much carbohydrate. So I know some people will get away with less, but I would theorize that that's probably a fairly good amount to get to in terms of optimization is 30 to 45 grams an hour. That's interesting. I think that matches pretty specifically what I've seen work with folks I'm working with as well as myself. It's a question I get a lot because hmm. what ends up happening is, you know, I'll do a race and that's what gets most of the attention versus, you know, what I'm doing on any given training uh, block hmm. or workout and, uh, they'll want, people want to know, like, what did you eat during it? What did you drink during it? All these different metrics you can pull out of a hundred mile effort. And I remember in, in 2019, when I ran 11 hours and 19 minutes for hundred miles, I was basically hitting about 40 grams per hour. So mm -hmm. everyone wanted to know, like, is that high carb? Is that low carb? Is that somewhere in between? And why did you pick that number versus the recommendations for single day ultras, which I believe is like 50 to 70 grams versus the other side of the spectrum where it's like, well, why did you even have any, like, why did you just not have zero carbs during that race? Uh, and, you know, just, you, you end up generating a lot of questions and, you know, my, my, my answer was essentially, well, based on the metabolic cart testing, I do have if I look at just the percentage of fats and carbohydrates that I'm going to be burning at a pace that comes out to basically nine miles per hour, I am going to be burning 15 ish percent carbohydrate during that. So that's going to be coming from my muscle glycogen if I'm not eating anything. And when you look at the research with muscle glycogen and when your body starts 
kind of increasing the difficulty of a given intensity, you see, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong about this. I believe it's around 40% depletion is when you start seeing some performance dips. So my thought is I need to fend my muscle glycogen enough so that I'm not fighting an uphill battle in the final 20 miles. And for something that's going to take me 11 to 12 hours to do, even burning as high a fat as I am, I am going to be dipping into those glycogen stores. So there's kind of this dual goal of getting enough to defend or the other way I also look at it is like, if I want to be really, really safe in push up to where I know I'm almost certainly not going to get a digestive issue, which also happens to be around 40 grams for me. If it's, I can get, a, I can push over 40 grams. If it's like say a 50 miler and I'm going to be done in six, this hours, six or less hours. But if it's something that's 11 to 12 hours, if I do that same fueling strategy, I may have a few extra bathroom trips in the later stages of the race. So uh, some of that's just trial and error. Some of it's uh, information I've got from metabolic testing and things like that, how I've come up with those numbers. But it seems like it squares fairly closely with what you've seen with folks who've, who you've researched or worked with as well. Yeah, completely. I think there's, there's some interesting work to do here and it's kind of begun to be done there's some a group of research in south africa that I, I know published a case study where they kind of slowly reintroduce carbohydrate throughout the training cycle i think that's where this is going which is why there's so much scope for different areas of research in that when if you're very well adapted to keto and you've been keeping the carbohydrates really low then there's a good argument to say that you're not as good at using the carbohydrate now if you periodize your carbohydrate just a little bit more, it's kind of all those sort of small nuances that I think at the moment, like chronically ketogenic athletes are kind of playing around with themselves. Um, but it's definitely an interesting one to see, right? Can you get someone fat adapted, but still kind of good enough at using carbohydrate to really benefit from it? And then what is good enough? Can we make them a bit better? Can we get them to, you know, can we get them at 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour but better at using that same 40 grams by certain dietary methods and it's another one where i think yeah i think it's a periodized nutrition kind of concept which is you know like i say big in sports science right now but kind of flipped on its head where rather than having the base be high carbohydrate and having the fasted sessions here and there it's like let's have the base very low carbohydrate and see kind of where we can periodize carbohydrate in and things like this i think that's kind of what excites me because especially when i speak to ketogenic athletes and they've all tried these kind of things I know because some people I speak to the ones that don't add any carbohydrate and they've they've all tried it and and often what I hear is that they just feel dreadful when they take carbohydrate at all and so for people like this I think okay this sounds to me like a good idea of, I mean the training or gut concept kind of comes back but again it can't it's come from the bottom up where we're not trained they got to try and consume you know insane amounts of carbohydrate that probably question the long-term health of doing that as well to be honest but from a purely performance standpoint it's can we just get you good enough at metabolizing carbohydrate just to get you know 30 grams an hour in because i think that probably will make someone better over over just about any distance really mm -hmm. yeah i mean my anecdotal uh experience would reflect that for sure so it's interesting to see what what someone like yourself who's just probably had access certainly at more access to folks who have been fairly structured in the manner that they're kind of reporting to you and the, the studies you're able to do and things like that. So it's really interesting to kind of hear the specifics around all of that. And um, the other side of the fueling angle, I think is, you know, we tend to look at this stuff through like carbohydrates, fats, exogenous, endogenous, and we sort of leave certain things on the table, like caffeine and electrolytes and things like that. 
but the one I think would be interesting to chat to you about is exogenous ketones and what their their potential implication would be across the board, whether they're your high carb, mod carb, low carb, strict keto, zero carb, like what role could they potentially play? From my understanding, the research we have at the moment that is the most convincing would potentially put them as a more of a recovery tool than an intra workout performance type of a thing. But uh, I know there's been some discussion about just how that's implemented, whether we're giving someone exogenous ketones who are you know, not practicing a low carbohydrate diet and their body's ability to actually utilize that fuel source. I tend to think of it in a couple different semi-contradictory ways. One is if you're on a high fat diet, it would stand to reason, I guess, that your body's going to know what to do with that exogenous ketone a little bit better than someone who's uh, following a high carbohydrate diet. The other side would be if you're already following a low carbohydrate diet, have you already pulled that lever far enough where introducing exogenous ketones is there's only so much improvement you can make versus a person who has low fat oxidation rates because they're following a high carbohydrate diet. Maybe they introduce exogenous ketones and it's kind of like the best of both worlds. They're, they're burning high octane fuel whenever they want to, but they also have that, that comfort of leaning back on higher fat oxidation rates as well. Um, that's just kind of been what I've been batting around in my head. <laughs> yeah, no, I think exogenous ketones and specifically ketones, I think are such an interesting supplement in the context of low carbohydrate and ketogenic research in general, because you can learn a lot about the role of ketones. So I think actually just taking out performance for a, for a second, I think we'll learn huge amounts about potential benefits of ketogenic diets through the work of things like ketone esters. From a performance perspective, they're also really interesting. I think for a while I was a bystander like everyone else with the research going on from the likes of Brianna Stubbs and, and others um, looking at their role just in, you know, high carbohydrate based or just standard diet based athletes. And, um, and it kind of got to originally when we were planning my PhD, there was, we weren't looking at any kind of supplements. We were solely focused on keto. And as we kind of progressed and we kind of would, I was keeping an eye on the research, just out of sort of interest because I'm interested in ketosis and the potential benefits it may bring. And we kind of came across the idea that just because just, just like when you cut your carbohydrates, you become worse at using carbohydrates. So keto athletes tend to be slightly worse at oxidizing carbohydrate. The same kind of goes for ketone esters. And so there was one paper, I forget the author, it might've been uh, Deer Love et al. I think it was a group from Oxford who I think it was actually fairly recent who showed, looked at actual ketone ester or ketone oxidation rates in a ketone ester based study. And they showed, I think to, it was about 4% of total energy came from the ketone ester, which is, which is tiny. And this is in just standard athletes. And so looking at this and looking at um, like subsequent research on, um, it was non-human research, but suggesting that chronic exposure to ketones will improve your ability to use ketones essentially. Suddenly that got me thinking with my kind of, I suppose, in a sense, like unique access to keto adaptive people. I thought this makes a lot of sense that if we're seeing that this chronic exposure to like a low grade ketosis will actually, but basically it can override the sort of pyruvate limiting aspects that we find in non-ketogenic athletes, where basically when you've got sufficient carbohydrate and you're not keto adapted, you're not using much in, in terms of ketones. And so with that in standard athletes, it kind of made sense then that any change in performance we're seeing is quite small. And right now it's unclear, especially pre-exercise. And I think you're right in terms of recovery. So recovery is 
not my area. I'm kind of, again, interested bystander in that. And I'm looking at it as a pre-exercise fuel still just to look at really piece that together. I think what's exciting actually about it as a supplement is that there's a lot of areas for it still to, to go in. And I'm really interested in the recovery stuff, but solely from a pre-exercise standpoint, it kind of made sense when that recent paper came out that okay, this is why we're probably not seeing improvements in performance if standard high carbohydrate athletes aren't especially good at using the ketones. Then the question becomes what happens if you give, give it to people on ketogenic diets, right? So they're going to be better at using it, but how much better enough to improve performance? Um, like what is it instead of? Um, so that's why I'm really interested in it. Again, there's not been, as far as I can see, any research looking at ketone esters on ketogenic athletes. Um, but it stands to reason that they will be more effective than it is in high carbohydrate athletes. Now, unfortunately, more effective, you know, it, is it going to improve performance? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. I would theorize that yes, but not by itself. You see in research, it's always ketones plus carbohydrate. And in standard high carbohydrate athletes, it kind of means they're not using very many ketones still. Whereas in ketogenic athletes, because they've had this low-grade exposure to ketosis, they are more able to use the ketones even with exposure to high-carbohydrate feeding. So my theory would be ketone esters added to carbohydrate may well be more effective than carbohydrate alone for ketogenic athletes, and it's what we're looking at. Um, and obviously, we don't know yet. It's, it's solely a theory. But I think it's really exciting because, like I say, I know, firstly, it's something that interests a lot of people on keto diets because they're interested in ketosis. And also, from a the metabolic standpoint, it's really interesting to see, are you getting different, actual different effects on performance based on someone's dietary status? Because there's quite a lot of implications that I think with, right, if there's certain effective supplements or effective performance enhancing things such as exogenous ketones and then carbohydrate in this context, it's actually understanding the interaction with diet. Because I think in, until quite recently, you wouldn't have been thinking about supplementation based on someone's nutritional status whereas i think looking at the, at least mechanistically there is there are going to be differences based on what where someone is in terms of their carbohydrate intake so it's another area with more questions than answers right now so i wish i could sit here and tell you that this will help or this won't help but right now it's kind of it's it's theory over over actual um over hard data but hopefully not forever yeah all the fun topics are the ones with more uh, questions than answers. It seems <laughs> we lose interest once we know the answer. So I guess that stands to reason, but um, I do want to touch on uh, the experiment you're currently putting into place uh, before we wrap things up, because uh, for one, it was what spurred on this interview, which I'm very thankful for. I, I mean, I've said this to a few at, or a few uh, guests where it's like, I, I just took way too long to, to have you on the show. So I'm thankful that you, you're, you're willing to come on, but you want to tell us a little bit about the current research project that you're working on. It sounds like you're getting good participation or response to that. Um, but if you do are looking for more, definitely feel free to put a plug for any of our low carb keto friends over in the UK. Yeah. I mean, we're always looking for participants. I think I mentioned that keto adapted athletes are, are hard to come by. And there are, you sort of, when, it, when you, when you go onto the internet, you see they're everywhere, but in the context of sort of being in certain places, it's the further away than you seem. So we're always looking for participants, but um, the work we're doing, we've got a few things going on. I think the main one right now is our lab based work where we're looking at the impact of carbohydrate supplementation on endurance performance and we're looking at sort of high intensity aerobic performance 
So that's about an hour and a half worth of cycling in total. We're really, we're really interested actually in not just how does carbohydrate impact performance, which is the most important metric, but also simply just how it's impacting metabolism. So how are these ketogenic athletes able to actually oxidize carbohydrate? Are they, are they good at it? Are they bad at it? And then different types of carbohydrate um, provision. So this all came from actually, in part, I, I, I forget exactly, I think I was listening to you on a podcast that years ago, and you were mentioning your fueling regimes for certain races. And I, I remember you saying something about having sweet potato a couple of days before or something like that, and then not eating the morning before a certain exercise. And it's not something I considered before until you kind of think about the potential theory behind it in terms of longer endurance runs and wanting to increase your glycogen levels, but not spike your insulin right before you go. Mm-hmm. And so back then I was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to find a way to get this into the study. And so we kind of have a few arms going where we have a carbohydrate or placebo drink that someone will take two days out from their exercise. And then also like a, a carbohydrate drink slash placebo on the day. And we mix and match to make four different groups, one of which will be taking nothing at all, just be placebo all the way through. One of which is taking carbohydrate for two days and on the day. And then two other groups, which is either or. So two days of carbohydrate, but nothing before their exercise. And then nothing before, but just taking carbohydrate on the day. And it's kind of an extension of what we did with our case study work before, where we were looking at different types of carbohydrate provision. And really what we're looking for here is just different responses to different types of carbohydrate ingestion. So for example, when I mentioned people that sort of stay low carbohydrate all the time because they don't enjoy or they can't stomach the carbohydrate. So our theory was, right, let's give them two days of carbohydrate first and just get them slightly more adapted to it. So that's really what we're doing in our lab. So we're based in Southwest London in Kingston. And, um, and that's our main lab-based study. We've got a few other things kind of going on. We loop, because we had our sort of our lockdown during coronavirus, we uh, created like a remote study where we would send supplements out to people and, um, and then using Zwift, so the cycling app, would get them to race certain routes on Zwift. And so we're still doing that as well, which, um, which is where we're using our ketonester-based work. So we're sort of sending people ketonesters or carbohydrates, et cetera and uh, studying them remotely on Zwift. So that's anyone in the UK can take part on that, regardless of, uh, of how close they are to our labs, which is nice. I think we've spoken to someone recently up in the Scottish Highlands, which is about as far away as you can get from me in Southwest London. It's kind of right up the top. And in the context of America, it's not very far. It's probably like a five hour drive, but for us, that's, that's miles. <laughs> um, so that's, that's really the main research we've got going. We've even got, um, I'm looking at ketonest as well in our lab, looking at non-keto-adapted athletes. Um, so I actually had some people uh, that got in touch with me based on uh, last week on your podcast that, um, that followed the ketogenic diet previously, but are now back on like a standard diet. And so for people like that, we've got a, a study just looking at ketone esters uh, with or without carbohydrates on endurance performance. So really, um, when it comes to our recruitment, we're looking at just <laughs> any active individuals. So with uh, endurance athletes, particularly. And, um, and yeah, so we're looking at all things ketonesters and carbohydrates, particularly around ketogenic athletes. But also, there is an element uh, without. So yeah, we've got a lot going on right now. Um, I think it's because we had our lab for close for just over a year, I think, because of coronavirus. And we came back and we're like, right, it's time to go. Hit the road, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's do everything. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and uh, I'll just comment on kind of my, my particular approach with that. It's, uh, I want to say... Uh, Dan Plews's lab oh. did some research that I'm pretty sure it's not published, at least not yet, but they were looking at that particular approach where you have an event that's really long, like hundred miles where you definitely want to be burning high amounts of fat if you can. And you're looking at ways to also not start the race with compromised glycogen levels if you can afford mm-hmm. to. So the idea is that 
you kind of go to what I would consider kind of a carbohydrate fueling strategy that I would do during peak training, but without the training, cause I'm tapering at that point for a day or two before, uh, but then leveraging the overnight fast and not introducing carbohydrate for breakfast and at the start line so that I start the race still assuming that I'm burning, you know, relatively high amounts of fat as I get started and then start introducing the carbohydrate about 45, maybe 60 minutes in when I've more or less like really opened up that, that, that fat burning channel. And the theory, I guess there is by doing it that way, you kind of have yourself in a situation where you're, you can dually, you have a dual fuel substrate. That's going to be just maybe a little more powerful on both arms versus uh, leaning too heavily on one versus the other is probably the, the simple, possibly flawed way to say it. <laughs> no, it, it makes complete sense for longer endurance pieces. I think mm-hmm. definitely because you don't, you don't want to inhibit the fat oxidation that you spent months and years kind of building up. But at the same time, it, it definitely, it rings true that there's still a place for carbohydrates. So this is why we want to investigate it really, because you know, we have a lot of theory and we have ideas and it's a case of, right, let's see what happens when we put them in practice, especially mm-hmm. with, I mean, when we're giving people carbohydrates straight before exercise, it's really interesting to see how much fat people can still burn, even when you've just given them a carbohydrate drink when they're fat adapted, which is really interesting to look at because I kind of assume, right, they've taken carbohydrate in quite a large bolus. So they're probably going to burn a lot of carbohydrate here in some fairly intense exercise, but actually you're still able to burn really impressive amounts of fat, even with the carbohydrate you're taking in. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I also thought about I don't work with as many, as many folks running shorter than ultra marathons, although I have gotten a lot more of those folks lately. And it is interesting because sometimes they'll wonder like, well, what do I do differently? If I'm going to say, wake up in the morning and run like a 5k or a 10k. And at that point, it's like, I'm not really worried about them having super high fat oxidation rates for an event like that, because they're just not going to tap out their, their muscle glycogen unless they're already going in their compromise. So for them, it's like, I could see a scenario where doing the carbohydrates for breakfast, maybe as just as, as good of an approach, because now you're in a situation where you might want to encourage your body to go more glycolytic because you kind of have to right out the gate for a race as short as five kilometers. Yeah. And there's also a really interesting area of research looking at the way carbohydrates impact the brain. And there's so much where you come across sort of there's mouth rinse studies where people will mouth rinse carbohydrate. And so quite a big part of me wonders when it comes to shorter events like that, where I think with ultra endurance events, you kind of have less room for error when it comes to nutrition and it comes to actually maintaining glycogen stores, maintaining fat oxidation as well. Though. So it's, it's a much more difficult one with shorter aerobic pieces. You kind of have a bit more room for error because you're not going to deplete your glycogen realistically. And so I've, my, my thoughts are that I wonder if, if there is any benefit of carbohydrate in those short ones, it's just as much the impact it's having on the brain as it is anything physiological in the muscle. Um, so often maybe it's that carbohydrate breakfast, maybe it's not doing anything for you physiologically. Cause I mean, realistically, you're not going to, like you say, get through your glycogen stores. You're not going to be hypoglycemic, et cetera, but maybe it's just that effect it's going to have on the brain. But again, it's, it's an open question. It's an interesting one. And what I would like to see in that, in that respect is carbohydrate mouth rinse studies on keto adaptive people. But this is a shout out to anyone that wants to do some kind of like dissertation project. Yeah. Well, hopefully folks like yourself and some of the other keto researchers will spur a, a influx of interested students. I know they're out there. I've had a 
you know, guys like Brady Homer on the show in the past, and he's a young guy who's really interested in this topic and kind of heading that direction. So I think we've got a lot of, a lot of fun stuff to, to unpack over the next few years with, with this topic, as well as many others in the, in the, in the sporting world. So uh, Matt, I want to thank you for taking some time and uh, out of your evening, I guess it's kind of late morning for me, but probably getting to late evening for you uh, to come on the show. If you want to share anything else, so like social media channels, websites, or anything else you're up to, feel free to do that. And I'll also be sure to put the links to that in the show notes and on the webpage. Brilliant. Thanks. Yeah. I've had this has been a really interesting chat. So thanks for having me on. And then, yeah, my, my, my Twitter, sorry, is I think it's Matt Carpenter 14. So that's there. And if anyone wants to email me regarding my studies, just if you want to participate or just you have, you know, anything to say, I'm always open to it. I'd say other people want to look at carbohydrate mouth rinsing. <laughs> Their projects, definitely. <laughs> Let's discuss that. But yeah, it's uh, m.carpenter at kingston.ac.uk if anyone wants to email me as well. But yeah, thanks a lot for having me on, Zach. It's, uh, it's been really good fun. I know yeah. it's getting dark here now in England, so enjoy the enjoy your day. Absolutely, I will. And uh, we'll have to have you back on down the road, whether it's to share some study results or dive into some of these topics in more detail or some new ones that I'm sure will pop up once people listen to this and want to know why we didn't talk about such and such. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to come back on. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, take care, Matt. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 